when we did Twin Peaks, um, people kept saying, well, gosh, you guys are like the Beatles of TV now. The show was kind of often compared in its own way. And we had a, a similar kind of skyrocketing trajectory of, of very sudden, intense global fame. The show hit really hard around the world. So it, for about a year, I kept saying to David Lynch, you know, this must have been what it was like to be a little bit to be in the Beatles. Hmm because it was relentless and it was coming at you from all directions. And at the same time, you're trying to make the show that, you know, we're making the second season. It, it was intrusive and weird. And I, I, I understand now how deranging fame can be when you're trying to focus on your work and, you know, shepherd some kind of artistic endeavor and the world just doesn't want to let you alone for something that you've already done. If you're not in the right frame of mind, it can do a number on you. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today we have a very special guest. Novelist, screenwriter, film and TV producer and director, Mark Frost. Along with his partner, David Lynch, Mark co-created the hit TV show Twin Peaks, which is often listed among the greatest television series of all time. Mark began his career writing for The Six Million Dollar Man and Hill Street Blues. He's won a Golden Globe, a Peabody Award, and countless Emmy nominations. Mark has an illustrious publishing career. His 2002 book, The Greatest Game Ever Played, was a national bestseller and named by The Wall Street Journal as one of the 10 greatest sports books of all time. He also co-wrote the two Fantastic Four films for Marvel. Thank you to all who have been tuning in weekly. It's nice to see you back this week. And to all of those newcomers, welcome. This is a podcast where we explore the Beatles' continued influence on today's world and popular culture, decades after their breakup. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Really happy to be here, Jack, and, and nice to speak with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm uh, sitting here by the beach in Ventura, California, looking out at the waves. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you got into the Beatles music? Sure. Um, I grew up in a show business family. My dad uh, started working. Both my parents had been actors in college and they did summer stock and they settled in New York. But my dad got into um, stage managing some one of the, the big live TV weekly dramas that were the staples of late 1950s television in America. It was called the Philco Playhouse. And through that work, he, he got to work with amazing actors, directors like Sidney Lumet and John Frankenheimer and Delbert Mann, all of them who went on to really prominent careers in the movies for the next 30 years. Um, we decided after, uh, or he decided, my parents decided, after live television had kind of stopped being the main focus of, of TV, that the industry was going to shift to the West Coast. So we moved from Brooklyn, where we were living and where I was born, to LA in 1958. Uh, I was just shy of five years old. Um, it was the same year the Dodgers moved to LA. And 
I grew up in a neighborhood uh, actually within walking distance of where they built Dodger Stadium, which opened four years later. And I actually went to opening day with my dad. And so baseball has been a big part of my life too. And um, that was uh, kind of the most exciting thing that happened to me as a younger person. Um, I was always a big music lover and we had musicians in the family. My, my mother's mother had been a, a concert violinist who studied at the Sorbonne and um, I grew up hearing her play music. And uh, my grandfather was a great keyboard player. His father had been a kind of a legendary tenor in upstate New York. So I was, I, I grew up around music and uh, the record player was always going in our house. My parents had a great fondness for popular music for, um, the Sinatra era, um, the great American songbook and Broadway musicals. So those were a constant in my early life. And I guess my first, uh, sort of solo foray into, um, uh, my own musical tastes was joining the Columbia record club when I was about 12 years old and started buying albums and had to get a paper route to support my habit and, um, started building a pretty serious record collection early on. Um, but prior to that, when I was about, I guess it was, I had just turned 10 years old, that the atmosphere in the country at that time was pretty grim. On my 10th birthday, we buried JFK. He'd been shot and killed three days before. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. some 38 minutes ago. It cast a pall over the country that is, is hard to imagine. I mean, I think the only contemporary example would be the feel that we had after 9-11 20 years ago. The, the, the depth of despair that that brought uh, to people was um, very similar to what we all felt in the aftermath of that assassination. Um, and so there was a, a hunger, I think, in the country and also in younger people how do we deal with this anguish? How do we, where do we put this pain? And um, the answer came to me a little over a month later when a kid from across the street, one of my neighbors invited me over and he showed me uh, a 45 that he just picked up. It was Love Me Do. So please, love me do. Classic photo of the four mop tops, the, the Fab Four, you know, the same suits and the, the same haircut and the happiness that they just seemed to emanate um, was infectious. Um, and then he put the record on and everything seemed to stop. It was, it was an entirely new sound. I mean, I hadn't been a big Elvis Presley fan. I'd already sort of at that point dismissed him as a kind of a a half a joke in these Hollywood movies that he was turning out, you know, one or two a year. And they were pretty bad, at least to my young eye and ear. Um, so here was something utterly original. It was uh, completely fresh. It was uh, exotically foreign. You know, they were British. I didn't, hadn't met a lot of English people at that time in my life. They had the, the wit, the sense of humor, and then when they showed up, I don't know, a month later in February on the Ed Sullivan show for, what was it, three weeks in a row? Yeah. That was it. Go ahead, Ralph. I love them. I don't care what anybody says. Go ahead, 
86. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I love them. I mean, the country was in the grips of literally Beatlemania, and um, we were riding the crest of it. Um, we started buying all the 45s, learning everything we could about them, and then this media avalanche started coming our way with the, the first movie. It's been a hard day's night. We, you know, we expected, we'd seen movies that rockers had made before in the 50s, and they were just almost indescribably lame. <laughs> but um, this one, black and white, hilarious, was utterly gripping. I mean, it was genuinely witty and genuinely funny. And I watched it again not that long ago and still felt like it's as funny as it was the day it came out. It's hilarious. And that, that scouse humor, you know, the guy that, that liver puddlian wit and um, self-possession that these guys had was kind of like the Marx brothers to me that they, they were really funny and then they could strap on the guitars and make the most compelling music I'd ever heard in my life. So they were it. So by the time Help came out, which was what, two years later, 65, I think. Yep. I remember going opening day down to the uh, the big brand theater in Glendale, California, uh, one of those grand old movie palaces and uh, just being blown away. And by now Help is considered a lesser movie at this point, but that kind of, cemented it for me it was in color you know and the, the album was fantastic help was my favorite of those first early albums there wasn't a really a bad song on it oh totally uh, and they were already you could see spreading their wings artistically from you know the cover band that they'd once been to um all those those uh, great early rockers they were making to really finding their own sound um and that's when i really dug in and became uh I would say, completely obsessed with them. So you've been a true fan from the beginning, and you watched them progress over all these years. I did. Uh, and um, and it was it was not just me. I mean, it was, it was literally everybody you met. I mean, I didn't know a single person who didn't love their music. Um, and I, as it turned out, I, a couple of years later, we moved to Minnesota from L.A., where we were at that point. And... Um, I became friends with a group of people, including a number of musicians who I went to high school with, who all just, we we watched every move. And everywhere the band went, we wanted to go with them. You know, they, and I think this was a key to not just their success and their longevity, but also their artistic um, growth, was that every album was an evolutionary step forward for them. Um, in, in music and in complexity and the, the skill of the songwriting and the themes that they were tackling. Um, so this was literally the soundtrack of our lives and what felt like the soundtrack of our generation. I mean, I was into all sorts of different kinds of music, but the, the Beatles always occupied a place on a shelf above everybody else. And I, I loved all kinds of music, everybody from the birds to, Jefferson Airplane, to The Doors, to The Beach Boys, you know, on and on and on. Um, I had a 45 collection that, you know, filled an entire bookshelf. And then I had started to collect albums as well. But there was something uh, really a, a, a cut above that, in my mind, they always maintained. 
and and felt like they really spoke to us as people, as as few musicians up to that point had. They weren't just chasing hits at that point. Once you get to Rubber Soul and Revolver, when they really pivot toward, I think, being fully expressive of what their own artistic uh, leanings were, and they start to bring George into the fold as a, a songwriter, a third songwriter in the group. So and now you're talking about three songwriters who are probably all top 10 all time. Yeah. Um, and you put, and you know, they're the first to tell you the the group never really came together until Ringo got behind the drums and he gave them the beat that they needed. I mean, he was, he's, well, I mean, he's not underrated anymore, but there was a, there was a long time when Ringo was thought of as, oh yeah, well, he's just the fourth wheel, you know, but no, they, they'd be the first to tell you the Beatles didn't come together until he sat in and suddenly they had a guy, a really distinctive drummer who was giving them exactly the beat they needed to, to, as the bed to put their work on. You seem to be really into the Beatles creative process and how they evolved album to album. Has their creative process influenced yours? Do you see any similarities between the two? Yeah, I think it did. Um, I, uh, you know, I I knew I wanted to be a writer from like the age of seven or eight on. Um, I'd been around television and television production my whole life. Um, in first grade, I was a, I was actually a guest. You might not remember this reference, but there was a truly famous and universally watched show called Art Linkletter's House Party in the in the 60s. I think it went in all the way to the 70s. It started in the 50s. And he had a segment. It was like a, an early variety afternoon talk show. But every episode he had a segment um, where he would bring out four kids from local schools. And it was called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And and he would interview. So I was one of those kids in first grade. I got picked oh, to wow. be on the show. So I had an early taste of what it was like to be up on stage and seeing the the lights go on and watching the red lights and the camera and hearing a, a, applause and, you know, telling a joke that landed and getting a great response. So I, I knew this was probably going to be the path I was going to go down. And what I liked about the Beatles, what, and, and this again uh, separated them, I think, from a lot of other groups is that they came out of a real performing tradition uh, that included things like English Music Hall and our version of vaudeville and skiffle music and um you know the the paul's father was a band leader he they were entertainers they weren't just kind of sullen rock musicians who were introverted and speaking through their music they were showmen and there was a there was a polish and a and a kind of wit and um uh and willingness to put themselves out there that i'd never seen before um, it showed up later in, in, in other places like, uh, you know, the Smothers Brothers were a great musical group who did musical comedy and had their own variety show and had a big impact in this country um, later on with their willingness to get political with the things that they were talking about. But the Beatles were there from the jump. You know, um, you, you find out as early as 1964 um they don't want to perform in some cities that they've got them scheduled to go into in the South because the audiences are going to be segregated. I mean, who else had the balls to do that at that time? It was inspirational 
um, on all sorts of levels. So by the time I got into high school and I was with this group of friends that included some really skilled musicians, every album became an event. It was, uh, you can remember every day you got that album in your hands. It was a, it was a red letter day. And even uh, albums that were less well-received uh, or less well-remembered, like Magical Mystery Tour, it was still an event to get new Beatles music. Pretty soon I realized I was being inspired not just by uh, the music itself, but by their growing artistic ambitions, their, their willingness to develop, you know, like in a hard day's night or help the first music videos per se that people had done to, to branch out into performing. And John was showing up in movies and then Ringo started showing up in movies. And um, you realized you were dealing with not just, it wasn't Paul Revere and the Raiders. It wasn't a group you could watch on Dick Clark every week where bands came and went. These guys were in it for the long haul. Um, and I was just signed on from that moment forward. Uh, I wanted to see and hear and uh, somehow experience everything that they were going to do. Do you have a favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Yeah. Um, I met three of them. Oh, no way. Yeah. And I and uh, it started, I'll tell you the story in sequence. It's about 1975, I think. And I, I had just come back to, uh, out to LA. I'd come out after my third year in college and I was starting to get a a foothold in the business. I was writing the $6 million man at like the age of 20. And my two roommates were also becoming successful actors. They both went on to have tremendous careers and uh, nominated for Oscars and Emmys. And uh, one of them was the, the son of a, a really well-known movie star at the time, Alan Arkin. His son, Adam, was one of our trio. And the three of us were walking down Sunset Boulevard. We were on our way to Tower Records, the, the which was kind of the mecca then for LA on Sunset, where you would go to buy any album you were looking for. It was it was a scene, um, and it was probably a Saturday morning around eleven. Um, and we're we're walking. We parked a couple blocks away, and we're walking over, and we hear this roars of laughter coming from this bar. It's right on the sidewalk with the, all these open shutters, and we look in, and it's eleven in the morning, mind you, and there's two guys sitting at a table that is covered with empty umbrella drinks. That's a very key thing that I remember. And it's Harry Nelson and John Lennon. Wow. And they are drunk on their asses at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, having what looked like the time of their life. But I mean, also, you know, pretty deep in the, um, in the alcohol. So that was our first glimpse. We looked at each other like, oh my God, did you see what I just saw? And we, we didn't have the, the guts. They, they seemed a little out of it. So we didn't have the guts or the inclination to go in and press the advantage and just say hi or shake their hands or whatever. But it was a momentous sighting for us in the moment. Wow, I can't believe that. So that was the first one. Um, 1979 then, about five years later, I'm, I'm visiting a friend. Um, I've, I've gone down with a friend and another buddy, both musicians, one of whom has a regular gig every year at this high-end hotel in Acapulco. Um, but he plays like, you know, piano lounge music in the, in the lobby. It's a, it's a great gig and he invites us to come down and it's a pretty Tony place. I'd never been in such a high-end hotel at that point in my life. And 
we're living it up and we're all single and we're enjoying it and we're going out to the, the bars and the restaurants and it's a scene it's a real scene and one night we're in one of these discos and we're we're with um some some friends that we've met and lots of attractive women in the group and suddenly ringo comes in with his own little entourage oh wow and my buddy hal the piano player knew him because he'd met him on the number because he came in every night and he was the piano guy he was he was like billy joel and you know piano man and wow. he struck up an acquaintance with ringo so he invited us to sit at his table with him and so we sat there just digging the you know the, the whole vibe and ringo at that point was hitting the, the the cocktails pretty hard himself but he was a riot and he was everything you'd hoped he'd be he was as funny as he seemed on film and um and he was just right there just hanging with us and sharing stories and it was a little you know it was really loud but um probably an hour, we spent an hour with him i would say and wow you know, uh, it turned out later on uh, when I moved uh, to a different place in L.A. up on what was known as Woodrow Wilson Drive off of Mulholland. He lived around the corner. He was renting a house up there. So I, I would see him every once in a while, like out on a walk or something. And I'd just wave. You know, I didn't know if he would remember me or not, but he'd always wave back. Wow. Uh, so that was kind of cool. OK, uh, then this was the coolest thing. I had done television. I did a show called Hill Street Blues for three years in the early 80s, which was a pretty big deal on NBC. It won Emmys every year. It was the, the, the kind of the new iteration of uh, a cop show that uh, became a huge hit uh, throughout the country. And it was a great gig to have. Um, and I, off the strength of that, I, I got hired to write my first movie. Um, actually, I think it was to write my third movie, but this was the first one that actually got made. It was for an English director named John Schlesinger who was famous for having won an Oscar for uh, his film Midnight Cowboy in 1969. Groundbreaking film, uh, famous to this day, that it introduced John Voight as a movie star and was the first movie after The Graduate for Dustin Hoffman. Um, he had done other movies that were equally well-known in England and then also in America. He was directed the movie Marathon Man, which was a great thriller with Dustin Hoffman and a bunch of other movies. He was considered, you know, an A-list director. So he hired me to write this um, kind of interesting offbeat horror movie uh, called The Believers that eventually came out, I think, in 86. So uh, I wrote the first couple drafts. It was an adaptation of a novel. Um, and after writing the first couple of drafts, I, I he invited me to come over to England so we could finish up the final draft and get ready for pre-production. We were going to eventually shoot the the movie in Canada, but he lived in London. So I got my first trip to London uh, that year, flew over. They met me, uh, picked me up at the airport and we spent a night in town. Um, and I'm just blown away by London, the scene. You know, I've been hearing about it for so many years and I, I just fell in love with the place. But the next day, uh, John had a house in the country uh, near the town of Kent that he used as a getaway and also as a place to retreat to go work. So we went down there on that Saturday and I'm still pretty jet lagged. It was my first like 12 hour flight. So I'm a little wobbly. Um, and we kind of rest for a day and we get up the next morning. It's a Sunday. And he says, okay, well, we're going to work in the afternoon, but, um, the neighbors have invited us over for tea. So we thought we'd go over and 
you know, you can meet some of the folks in the neighborhood. And, uh, it was, you know, English countryside. So we go tromping through this open field uh, near there uh, behind his house um, toward what's clearly a farm. There's you know, fences and I see animals in the yard. There's goats and chickens and um, kind of a beat up fence that, that we go through. And we go to the back door of the house, also kind of beat up and well-worn, obviously a place that's really lived in. Not pretentious, just kind of a simple country cottage. And John knocks on the door. We hear a voice say, come on in. And the door opens and I walk in and it's the kitchen. We're in the kitchen. And there's somebody with his back to us cooking at the stove. And he, he turns around and it's Paul McCartney. No way. And they hadn't told me. And, <laughs> and apparently Paul was in on the joke because my face must have just, my jaw hit the floor. You know, I, would, <laughs> I was literally speechless. Um, and we, oh, so but he could not have, because he got this reaction, obviously, all the time. He was so used to it. But here we were in his house, you know, and he was, <laughs> he was just in himself. And uh, um, he invited us. We sat down to tea around the kitchen table. And, you know, finally, when I got up the nerve to finally speak, because they were catching up on local news and he was asking me about myself and what I'd done. He couldn't have been more gracious. Um, so we spent, I guess, probably 45 minutes with him. Wow. Um, and it was just it, it's something I'll never forget as long as I live. That you know, Linda came in and their kids were running around, and it was just like a view of their home life that you would never have gotten. And it was just I felt so welcome and so I was just on walking on air, and my jet lag instantly vanished. Right. And, um, so we had a, we had that we had a great session working on the script, and then I was there about a week, I guess, and we had. We were back in London and uh, they had production offices in Soho and we were going there for one last meeting, but I was going to leave, I think the next day. Um, and uh, as we're getting out of the car and going in, a Rolls Royce pulls up outside and Paul gets out. His office was like right next door. Oh, wow. And there's, you know, and people in the street go nuts and, and he looks over and sees me with John and says, Hey mate, how was your week? <laughs> and I'm going, oh my God, I'm on the street and Paul McCartney just said hello to me. It was like mind blown again, you know, and he goes in and that was pretty astonishing way to round off the trip. So then get this, I, um, I'm flying back the next day. I'm still high on this whole experience. Um, and, uh, I board the plane. They're flying me first class. Cause it's a, it's a writer's guild perk that you get to fly first class when you when they travel you somewhere when you're working and I'm, I, they put me in the front row. It's a, I think it was a, maybe a 747. That was like two seats, three seats in the middle and then two seats. And I'm getting strapped in. It's early morning. We're, you know, long flight back to LA. And I just kind of lean forward in my seat like you do to see who's, you know, sitting nearby and another guy in the middle of the seat next door leans forward at the ex exact same time. And I can't believe my eyes. It's George Harrison. No way. I'm not kidding. Wow, I can't believe this. So I, I just, I, my mind is further blown. So we get up in the air and I, and I just say, well, you know, you only live once. I got to go say hi. And I did. I went over and told him, you know, I just met Paul. And, and he knows John Schlesinger because 
at this point, uh, he's running this terrific film company as well as everything else, handmade films, and they've made Time Bandits and The Life of Brian and The Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins. So he's deep into the movie business and he knows John really well. So we've talked for probably half an hour. That is amazing. As we're going back and talking about movies and um, I think we made, you know, like vague plans. Well, you know, if you've got something you want to pitch, you should come in and meet us. Uh, so I, that never did happen. I got busy with other things, but um, super nice guy. I mean, just, and again, unpretentious, very present, hilariously funny. And that was my, those were my Beatles stories. I came off that plane going, my life will never be the same. Wow, that's just unimaginable to me. I know. I, I was very, very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. So what was it like for you to be like admiring these people your your whole life and then yeah. to all of a sudden be sitting in a kitchen with Paul McCartney and yeah. on an airplane with George Harrison? Well, I guess I was lucky in that having grown up around the business and um, I'd met, you know, a lot of movie stars, a lot of TV stars. I'd already started working with them at that point. I was very familiar with meeting people who were in the public eye. And to this day, I have a lot of friends who you know do this for a living. And my dad was an actor. You might remember him from Twin Peaks. He was the town doctor. He was Laura's, sure. uh, Laura's doctor and Donna's father on the show, Dr. Hayward. Um, he later went on to play George Costanza's almost father-in-law on Seinfeld. Um, so, you know, I, I was, I'd grown up in the business. I was used to it, but still meeting a Beatle was something else altogether. And, um, I've only had, I think one or two other occasions where I was just completely in the moment blown away that I'm meeting the, I think I met when I met Robert Redford, I had a similar experience a few years later. And, uh, and then Jack, uh, Jack Nicholas who I got to meet like four years ago, who I'm a big golfer and I've written a bunch of golf books and stuff. And meeting Jack was a big deal too. But again, proved himself to be just a a terrific human being who's utterly accessible, not pretentious, didn't take himself too seriously. And that's the thing that stays with you. The, The people who have that fame, who have been through the fire of that crazy, fame themselves um, and came through and they're still really great human beings. That was what was most impressive to me. And to this day, that's what I, I remember most about the folks who really mattered in my life, who actually were pretty terrific people. I'm assuming that after all your personal encounters with them, it's, it must be hard for you to choose a favorite Beatle. Yeah, I mean, I think temperamentally, I was probably the closest to Paul. Um, Again, never having really spent time with John, but I felt like I knew him pretty well, you know, from everything I knew about the Beatles and people who knew him and uh, what I knew about him. And uh, similarly, you know, his death was in its own way as shocking as JFK's um, when it happened. I remember, again, the exact moment watching Monday Night Football when Howard Cosell came on in the middle of a game to announce that He'd been killed. I mean, and he, to his credit, he'd like just signed off the broadcast. He didn't say another word that night. He'd had him on the show uh, commenting, uh, watching a football game, I think just a couple of months before. Yeah, that's right. You know, knew him. So the, the feeling that they were uh, part of my life. But when we did Twin Peaks, 
um, the show was kind of often compared in its own way. And we had a, a similar kind of skyrocketing trajectory of, of very sudden, intense global fame. The show hit really hard around the world. So it, for about a year, I kept saying to David Lynch, you know, this must have been what it was like to be a little bit to be in the Beatles mm. because it was relentless and it was coming at you from all directions. And at the same time, you're trying to make the show that, you know, we're making the second season. Um, it, it was intrusive and weird. And I, I, I understand now how deranging fame can be when you're trying to focus on your work and, 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 you know, shepherd some kind of artistic endeavor and the world just doesn't want to let you alone for something that you've already done. Um, if, if you're not in the right frame of mind, it can do a number on you. And I've seen it happen to a bunch of people. Um, but so people kept saying, well, gosh, you guys are like the Beatles of TV now. And, I, um, and, and David was always sort of cast in people's minds as the John of the duo you know, the darker, edgier guy. And I was the sunnier, more optimistic, you know, um, solid showman, you know, who could do the, uh, the who could work the sunnier side of the street. Now that's, it's nowhere near that cut and dried. It, it's when you're collaborating that intensively, it's, it's all give and take. And there are portions of each of us in, uh, in all those characters and all those stories. And there's probably some John and Paul and even George and Ringo and all of us as well. But um, so, yeah, I, I, I think temperamentally, and I guess because I did spend the most time with him and, and Lynch actually knew Paul quite well, both Paul and Ringo uh, from his work with TM and, and the Maharishi. So uh, in fact, he told me a great story uh, when the show hit really big, he'd been talking to Paul about it, who would really liked the show. Um, and he said, you know, the queen's really a fan. Whoa. I said, what? He said, yeah. Uh, Paul said he was over visiting the queen. It was like, he was getting like the next stage of knighthood or something. And she said, you have to excuse me. I've got to go upstairs. Twin peaks is going to be on in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, that so is amazing. I heard about that from Paul via David, uh, which was pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, so I, Paul is the, the guy that I probably relate to the most of the group. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So the Beatles comparison, was that going through your head at the time where you were creating Twin Peaks? Like, were you looking to them for any inspiration at all? I, I wouldn't say consciously looking for comparison, but, but the thing they did give me, which I think was crucial uh, throughout my life, and particularly when I got to that part of my career where I, I really felt we were out on the, the edge of a very high diving board, you know, with, without a net. Um, we took a lot of chances with that show, but it was partly the courage that I saw the Beatles have to follow their own path creatively, regardless of, of reaction, regardless of circumstance, they relentlessly worked in service of where their talent was taking them. And so I, as, as somebody who, uh, aspired to do similar kinds of things in my life, that became a, um, a real a resource I found I could draw on. You know, you know, if they could do it, I can do it. That's what they were telling us. As artists, go where people are afraid to go. 
go where your instincts and your ideas lead you. Don't follow the pack. Um, don't do what other people are doing. Don't try to copy anybody else. Be yourself. And um, that's the best advice I think you could give anybody who's pursuing an artistic career. Um, and them proving it for as long as they did in as many different ways as they did was really influential in my life. Mm. If Twin Peaks was a Beatles album, which album would it be? The White Album. Ah, very interesting. Um, as you know, the, the White Album is when the group started to fracture, um, just in terms of each of them kind of following their own path. And a lot of those tracks were were done separately uh, or recorded separately. That wasn't the same group um, kind of effort, even that you see in Get Back when... Um, uh, when they were doing that album next, um, they were, they were all together as a group, but the white album is when they really, and they went to some strange places, some strange, dark places, you know, Helter Skelter. Revolution number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. You know, they were coming off a day in the life. you were seeing them do these big leaps in creativity and, and ideas and going to dark places as well as the light. And again, that was sort of the John Paul yin and yang of it all. So yeah, uh, it, it, it would have been the White Album. Wow. So is the White Album your favorite Beatles album? Well, I, I, it's, it's up there. It's a, it's a tie in some ways between Revolver really got me. Um, and again, that was a transitional album for them when they were breaking away from three-minute formulaic, you know, um, bridge and chorus kinds of songwriting and, and going their own way. Um, and then the White Album, and then I think Abbey Road, which was in many ways the, the summation of their work together. Or I think they, they kind of came back together for a good portion of that. And, um, you know, the the medley on side two. I mean, we always experience these. Remember our medium for getting all these uh, tunes at that point was the album. That was it. There was no streaming. There was no, they weren't, we didn't have cassettes yet. We didn't have eight tracks. We didn't have DVDs. We had the album and, and albums were uh, a form of storytelling. And that's something that's a little devalued in today's, world where everything is kind of on shuffle you when you wanted to experience the album you put it on at the beginning and you know maybe you smoked a little bowl and you uh, lit some incense and you experienced it from start to finish right. it was a story whether it told a story or not it formed a narrative in your head and i my work in life was always about narrative and storytelling so i loved storytelling albums and the albums that I was most drawn to, I felt Pet Sounds was like that. I felt The Wall was like that, I, you know, uh, Quadrophenia. The, there, were, there were groups doing this at the time. Genesis started to do that a little later on. Springsteen uh, um, came along with that. You know, the Born to Run was the next great album that I felt I had encountered that had the force of a Beatles album in 75. So... Um, that was the way we experienced it as storytelling and narrative. And um, uh, a little bit of that has been lost now. But I think, I think 
some particularly hip hop guys are starting to get that back. They're they're totally into presenting narrative and and they want you to hear it in its entirety. You know, Kendrick Lamar and Kanye at his best and uh, The Weeknd. I mean, they're all doing this now. And Kid Cudi, they're 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 becoming st- much more kind of conscious storytellers. Beyonce, um, it's uh, it's I'm glad to see that music is returning to longer form storytelling because it's it's in many ways the most direct form of storytelling because it bypasses your logical brain and goes right into your heart and soul that, that's the that's what's different about music than what i do and 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 in some ways i'm envious of its ability to to bypass your conscious mind and go right to the subconscious and speak to it mm-hmm. um, so that was something we were trying to do with twin peaks was to bring music and image and, and sound and storytelling together in, a, in ways that it hadn't quite been combined before. In the last couple of years, Twin Peaks has been seeing this resurgence in popularity, yeah. much like the Beatles have been seeing this resurgence since the Get Back documentary came out. Yeah. What makes the Beatles music always relevant and what makes a show like Twin Peaks always relevant as well? I think they have this in common that they weren't, they weren't just cash grabs. I mean, you can say, yeah, in the early days, the, the Deca years, the capital years, the, the, the style then was, okay, find a group and then bleed them dry, you know, squeeze them for every last cent you can get out of them. Cause there's another one coming along any second. Right. And a lot of groups fell victim to that, but the Beatles resisted it. And, they had the benefit of George Martin backing him up. You know, he was their backstop and in many ways, kind of their spiritual father uh, as a, as a, a, a process. But even he talks about it at a certain point and it's around revolver and subsequent to that, it changes. And then suddenly George finds that he's, I'm producing them and they're guiding me. I'm just, uh, he turned over the wheel to them at that point and said, they know what they're doing now. So having had a long apprenticeship in television and storytelling and stuff, when I, when I got to Twin Peaks and David and I started working together, I was ready to take that step myself. I, I said, we want to step outside the convention and build something that's unique and cinematic and like a, a movie every week instead of just an episode. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's lasted as long as it has. We, we, it was a conscious effort to build something that would last, that had sound uh, foundations in storytelling and mythology and um, the, the kind of creativity would, we would draw from the collaborators that we used uh, on a regular basis. As I was running the show and uh, prepping every director to come in and do different episodes, I, was, I wasn't picking run-of-the-mill TV guys. I wanted people who were filmmakers with a distinct vision who could bring something of their own uh, skill set to what we were already working with. And so it became a, a kind of collective art project in that way. And we were utterly without network or studio interference because we did the show ourselves. So, I yeah, I think that's one of the reasons... That. And when we brought the show back in 2017, we brought the show back after a 25-year absence for, right. for a third season, which had never, as far as I know, been done before. And the first thing I can remember having a series of meetings with David like five years earlier, I said, we've got to do this. 
and he needed some persuading. He wasn't sure how we could do it. And I started to kind of lay out some ideas about how I thought we could. And the, and the way we were going to do it was by completely ignoring the style of the old show. We had to do something entirely different and entirely new. And that's what um, I think was the key to its kind of resurgence because it, it kept it going and it brought it home for a whole different generation. Um, and I, I think, you know, we've now built something that's going to last, we hope, for quite a while. Oh, it absolutely will. There's no question about that. So, Mark, what have you been up to recently? Have you been involved in any projects? Uh, well, I've actually, for almost, you know, I've written a lot of books now. I've, I've, I've moved away. After Twin Peaks, I've, I've started a publishing career, and I've written like 14 books and uh, turned a couple of them into movies and had a lot of fun because you have a lot more control over novels than you do over feature films. I mean, I wrote a couple of superhero movies for Marvel. I wrote the two early Fantastic Four movies because I loved the comics as a kid and they'd been trying to develop this for 10 years and we're getting nowhere. And I quickly realized this was, this was not the artistic freedom that I was used to. It was a corporate project. Um, but at least I was able to steer it back more towards its roots in the books, the, the, the kind of Stan Lee, Jack Kirby humor that was in those early years. Um, and so if I was successful at all in those early adaptations, I felt it was, okay, I got it at least back to the, the intent of the original creators. But it, it told me that the movie business has really changed. Um, I mean, all the studios are run by marketing departments now. And they will very often start with the trailer and the poster instead of a great script. They could, because it's usually something that's a sequel or something like something else, because it makes it easier for them to sell it. And that's what marketing guys do. So that's just the way of the world now. And the bets are so big that you have to place on a movie. If you have to put 200 million bucks into a, a film to launch it globally, then it better be a hit. And that means you have to narrow down your exposure to uncertainty, which means the films end up sort of all looking and sounding alike in a, in a certain way. Um, so I took a break from all that. And the last five years, I've actually been working on a play. I, I trained as a playwright. I went to Carnegie Mellon and trained as a playwright. And I came up in the theater, hadn't written a play in decades. And on the day that Donald Trump was elected, I happened to be in New York. I was on a book tour. And um, his victory party was in a hotel right across the street from mine. And so I was hearing the screams coming across the street through my window at 2.30 that morning before I even saw it on television. And I was pretty bummed. I mean, he, he, I'd met the guy. I knew he wasn't fit for this job. I knew we were headed toward a dark period in American history, which I think has been borne out. So on the next morning, in a gray, gloomy, rainy um, Wednesday in New York City, I thought, how am I going to respond to this artistically? What am I, what, what does it bring up in me? And I had an ace that I hadn't played in my deck. I had a great uncle who had been Franklin Roosevelt's secretary from 1935 until 1945, was a close associate of his and who had written a memoir about the, the war years of life in the White House with FDR. And he spent hours with him every day. 
he was the guy who wrote all his personal correspondence and answered all his mail. And I knew him as a kid. His name was William Hassett. He was my dad's great uncle. He was my great grand uncle. Um, and he had given me a copy of his book, which was published in 1958 when I was like 12 years old. It was way over my head at that point. Uh, but he also gave me this medal that he had. I didn't even realize what it was till years later. After FDR died, they struck about a thousand of these commemorative medals with the, listing all four of his inaugurals on it with his likeness to his closest friends. And my great uncle decided to give that to me. I guess he knew he was kind of near the end. He died within a year. Wow. So I thought back to my great uncle and I said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to call the, the FDR library in Hyde Park. It's about 70 miles north of New York City where FDR grew up. And I went up there that day and they knew obviously all about my uncle. He'd been one of the first trustees of the place. And they had assembled all this information about him and all this research. And I knew by the end of that day that I was going to write a play about FDR at war and the story of this relationship between my uncle and, and the president. So I've been working on that for five years and I hope within two years, we're going to have it, um, you know, knock wood, maybe on Broadway. That sounds incredible. Do you have a title yet? FDR at war. Wow. So if that comes out in two years, that that'll come out right around the time of the next election. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I think that's a great use of your artistic capability to use it to say something. Yeah, I, I, uh, I felt compelled to do it. I just, um, it's, you know, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if, you know, I'll ever make a nickel from it, but, um, um, it was deeply enriching for me because it took me into a journey in my own family's history and, um, his history with FDRs and, um, the, the idea that, um, this one man could make such a difference in the world. And at a time when, you know, he pulled America out of the depression. I mean, he kind of saved our bacon and then, you know, he was ready to retire and move on in life. And then the war starts in 39, Hitler invades Poland and, you know, everything goes to hell. Mm. And so for his, so it's like, okay, well, you saved America. Now, could, do you mind saving the world in the next four years? We need a little help here. And he right. does it, you know, he does yeah. it. Um, and my, my great uncle, by the way, he, um, is with him when he dies down in Warm Springs. He helps organize the funeral. He's the first guy to give the press release uh, to wow. give the news to the world. He, he rides back on the funeral train with Mrs. Roosevelt and FDR's casket. Um, they bury him at Hyde Park. He goes down the next day to clean out his office at the White House in Washington. And he gets a call from now President Truman, who had only been on the job for a couple of months. He, my uncle hadn't even met him yet. And he says, "Could you? would you mind coming up and seeing me? And he goes up to the Oval Office and um, Truman's very kind and uh, very sympathetic and sorry for your loss. And so, to, you know, tell me, what are your plans? And he said, well, I was going to retire. He's, he was over 65 at that point and moved back to Vermont where he was from. And he says, well, you know, I, uh, I asked Franklin, um, fearing that that day might come, you know, if 
I ever needed to take this job? Is there anyone that you think I'd need to have with me? And he said, there's one. And he said, it was you, Will. Will you do the same job for me? He ended up working for Truman for all eight years. He was in office or seven, I guess it was. Wow. Before he finally retired. Um, so a pretty amazing example of public service um, in the family's history. And um, it was, uh, it's always been an important thing for me to know. That's that's really incredible. I you know I've I've always thought there should be more movies and more content about lesser known stories in history, and I think yeah. that would be fantastic. Now, where would people be able to tune in to find out updates on it? Uh, I have a website. I mean, I'll, I'll and I'm on Twitter. You know, I'll I'll announce this as we get closer. I'm hoping to do a, I think a staged reading back east this fall and refine the script some more and then we'll we'll move on from there and see where we go well mark i have just one more question for you yeah where do you see the beatles music and influence in 100 years from now well it's a that's a great question i you know i um i'm sure you had the same reaction i know millions of people did seeing uh get back that was my favorite movie of 2021 i mean i thought of it as a movie it's brilliantly directed. I mean, Peter Jackson did an incredible job and it fulfilled having as close a knowledge of them as I did. The one thing I always felt I wished I could have been was a fly on a wall during a recording session. And that was the gift he gave us with that movie. He, he, uh, he not only did that, he not only brought us into their most intimate creative process, which was fascinating to see to watch these songs kind of be built block by block and brick by brick. Um, But to, uh, he also rehabilitated that album, you know, which had been so associated with the breakup and it had a bad rap uh, uh, as it was just kind of a downer for people. And the, the initial documentary that um, what's his name, the the director had done, I've forgotten his name for the moment, but um, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, but you know, it, it had been taken away from him and edited down. So it was, it, it was also kind of a downer. I mean, I barely paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this brought it all back to life and you, you saw, no, my God, they still love each other and they're still working together. They're still brothers. That was, I mean, it brought me to tears. It was, it was, it was so, um, it was such a great gift to people who, love the band and, and love the the vibe that those guys sustained for so long under such incredible tensions and difficulties that, you know, had broken up lesser bands, you know, a, a thousand times before they lasted a decade. That was kind of an eternity back then for how long bands could last. So um, that, that film is going to live, I think, for a long time. Hmm. Um, and the other thing that I've realized is that I introduced my son. I have a, uh, my son, Travis, who's now 19, to the Beatles really early in life. I mean, we started playing it when he was in the cradle, you know, I mean, and I noticed early on he would, he loved music. He would listen to everything. That, but when I played either Pet Sounds or any Beatles album, he would stop what he was doing and listen. Hmm. So he grew up, you know, he's part of your generation, um, but his musical 
tastes as they developed go all the way back even beyond the Beatles they go back to like Jack Teagarden and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra but but the Beatles are his touchstone and I'm so gratified because he's now um, he's a aspiring record producer himself and a, and a musician and, a, and an engineer wow I asked him a few years ago um, I have a nephew of my sister's oldest boy who's a professional baseball player. He pitches for the Chicago White Sox and he's nine years older than Travis. So he'd grown up watching Lucas Giolito is his name. And um, he'd grown up watching Lucas play. He was, a, a you know, an All-American as a high school kid, uh, drafted in the first round. I mean, it was just this exciting thing to watch. And he was a good baseball player himself and was thinking of following in his footsteps. And once he got into a really intensive, he was recruited by this high school that trains professional athletes. And he realized this isn't for me because he realized that inside him was that artistic soul that needed to be born. And he has since realized it's in music. So when I asked him two years ago, who do you want to be when you grow up? He said, George Martin. Wow. So it's been really exciting to see their music and their ideas and all the, you know, the other things that come from music live on in him and in the friends that he's making and the musicians that he's starting to know. It's still an animating force. The, the Beatles are, um, they're the background for all of our lives. Everybody who grew up in the last 50, 60 years, they stand mm -hmm. as an example of something that is thoroughly unique of this little band of guys from Liverpool who had the balls to stick to their guns always and, and had the courage to see their, their creations through to um, wherever it took them. Um, and I, so I can see it already living on in my son's generation and, and your generation. And that's really gratifying. Um, and uh, I, I think, I don't think they'll ever, I mean, as long as there are media of any kind, as long as we don't, blow up the world, you know, and, and there's, right. it's a bit of an open question at this point about yeah. all those issues. As long as there's a world, there will be the Beatles. There's always going to be a Mozart. There's always going to be a Beethoven. There's always going to be a Shakespeare. And I honestly, I put the Beatles up on that same shelf. So is your son's music public right now? Not yet. He's, he's, he's working on it. Uh, he's learning, he's learning his craft. You know, he understands this takes years, you know, yeah. to, uh, you've, you've got to find your voice. And so that's what I've always just encouraged him and anybody I talk to who's, who wants to be a writer or a musician or whatever. That's, that's the message. I always say, you got to find your own voice. You can start out by, you know, like the Beatles, they toured with little Richard, they knew Chuck Berry, they, you know, they covered their tunes, they were influenced by them, but eventually they found their own voices. And, um, if you if you want to make a difference, if you want to touch people and reach people and move people, that's what you got to do and, and never lose that, that North star to, to guide you. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's truly been an honor getting to talk to you and listen to your incredible stories. Thanks, Jack. I really enjoyed it. Good luck with the show. I can't wait to hear it. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. <laughs>
Thank you all for tuning in for this wonderful episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you so much to Mark Frost and telling us those wonderful stories. It was truly an honor speaking with you. If you'd like to go to Mark's website or follow him on Twitter, the links to both will be in the podcast description below. If you like this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you get a notification sent to your phone every week when we release a new episode. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Beatles Earth, and as always,